Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. I'll explain my injuries, my condition. But first, let me tell you how I got here. I never used to spend much time pondering the great mysteries of the ocean. To me, it was just somewhere to visit, to waste away a day or two. Spread out a blanket on the sand, grab a cold drink, and watch the waves. That changed the day I met James and his gang. I had been reading a book beneath my umbrella, listening to the gulls, the waves, the laughter all around me. A gust of wind cut across the beach and caught one of my empty beer cans. The can got carried a few feet, then rolled a little further. It bumped against the leg of a young man, probably in his early 20s, and came to rest. I stood, waving apologetically as the young man, James, looked in my direction. He picked up the can for me. Looks like you need a fresh one, he joked, holding up a beer of his own as I approached. Ah, uh, no, I've had plenty, but thank you, I said. I apologized again for letting my can get away from me. And that's when I noticed James was sitting in a circle of young people, men and women alike, all in minimal clothing, but not bathing suits, just shorts, tank tops, that sort of thing. There were six of them in all. They were all positioned around a collection of books and loose papers. In the very center of their circle was a small, unlit bonfire. James introduced himself to me, then went around the circle introducing the others. Honestly, I only remember two of their names now, Regina and Nathan. Regina was a beautiful brunette who sat to James's left, and Nathan was sitting directly across from him. The reasons I remember these two specifically will be apparent by the end of this story. James offered me a seat next to him, and his invitation to join the circle was echoed amongst the others. I smiled at them all. I was flattered to be invited into a group of such young, attractive people. In my late thirties, I was starting to feel as if my glory days were behind me. I say this only to explain why I was so willing to sit with this group of strangers. In hindsight, I should have been wary of why they wanted anything to do with me. We met online and traveled from all over the country to meet here today, James said. I'm from Cleveland, and Regina there is from Detroit, he said, pointing to the woman I mentioned earlier. I'm from Bourbon Street, I said flatly. Wait, like from here in town? Regina asked, and I told her yes. You're a lucky man, James said. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. I asked what he meant, and he grabbed one of the various pages weighed down by seashells in the sand. Then he asked me if I'd ever heard of something called a moon chaser. When I told him I hadn't, excited murmurs spread throughout the circle. He told me, moon chasers have long been thought to be extinct. We believe they're still around, though. Our scientists just don't take the care or patience to find them. So, what are they exactly? I asked. No one really knows, James said. 
All we know is they swim deep below the ocean following the moon's orbit. When the moon is closest to the Earth and its gravitational pull is strongest, the moon chasers come to the surface. As politely as I could, I told James that all sounded like nonsense. He didn't seem to take offense and said he expected some skepticism. Then he pointed to the page and told me it showed a sequence of calculations. We worked together and figured out the moon's strongest pull on the ocean will be just off the shore here at 1.37am, he said. Regina spoke up, saying, The last reported sighting was from a French soldier in 1944. He didn't survive the war, so the only way we know is a vague description in his diary. This could be one of the only chances we have in our lifetimes to see the legend for ourselves. If you want to find out if it's true, you're welcome to meet us here at 1.30, James said to me. I still thought it sounded crazy, but the group's youthful enthusiasm wore off on me. I hadn't stayed up past maybe 11 in years, so the prospect of coming out to the beach in the middle of the night to test some old legend was quite exciting. I asked, 1.30? Isn't that cutting it a little close? We're super confident in these calculations, James assured me. Showing up any sooner would just be a waste of time. I stayed awake by watching a crime thriller on TV, the kind of show that won't let you sleep even after the TV is turned off. At 1.15am, I got in my car and drove back down to the beach. Sand dunes passed me by on my right as I drove down the road. The full moon hung low in the sky and gave off an astonishing amount of light. I was glad I had stayed up, if for no other reason than to see the moon in this glorious state. I parked and was on foot by 1.25, hiking over the dunes to the beach. I could see up ahead the group had lit that bonfire they built earlier. James was holding some kind of device, maybe a protractor, up to the sky. I think he was measuring the moon's distance above the ocean. Another man, the one I mentioned was named Nathan, was preparing a camera with a very long lens. The other four stood near the water's edge, talking and joking. They held their hands in front of themselves as if they were each holding something precious, but I couldn't see what it was. I called out to them, and James waved me on excitedly. You're just in time, he said. I asked if there was anything I could do to help, and James told me I should just go wait by the shoreline with the others. I did as he said. As I approached, none of the others turned to look at me. They just stared over the water, unmoving. It wasn't until I was right behind them that they turned, and I saw what they had been clutching so tightly. Ropes. Each group member held a coil of dark green parachute cord. Their eyes were now full of an emotion I recognized but couldn't quite put my finger on. The good-natured, inviting faces that had seduced me into going to the beach that night had transformed into hungry, greedy expressions. Behind me, I heard James say, Do it. His voice held neither urgency nor hesitation. I had fallen into a well-planned and rehearsed trap. I first wondered if all the Moonchaser nonsense had just been part of the ruse. I thought they simply brought me there to kill me, maybe as some sort of occult ritual. But as they bound my hands and feet together and wrapped the cord around my legs and torso, I knew something much more complex was happening. They wanted me alive, but unable to run. Of course, I fought back and demanded to know what they were doing again and again. 
Finally, they laid me down in the sand. James stepped in front of me. He looked serious. His eyes studied me methodically. Can you move? He asked. If I could, I'd be gone. I fired back. Good, he said. You should know I'm still going to make good on my promise. You'll still get to see the moon chaser. Unfortunately, it's supposed to surface nearly a mile offshore. I imagine we'll be able to catch a glimpse from here, but in order to see it, to really see it, we had to find a way to bring it closer. And you think offering me as a snack will do the trick? I asked. James shrugged and walked away. Before he left, I noticed the first flicker of doubt behind his eyes. If I had tried, I could have poked all sorts of holes in the logic of their plan. It made no sense to think a mystical sea creature would suddenly come ashore because some loser was tied up and defenseless. But I was afraid of what they would do to me if I angered them. At that point, we were on neutral terms. I was simply a means to an end, not an enemy. I figured I still had a chance to reason with them if I did so kindly. What if I wait here until the creature gets close enough for you to take some pictures, then I run, I offered. No harm, no foul. No one has to get hurt or get in trouble. We don't know you, Nathan replied. How can we trust you? We went back and forth like that for some time, never really making any ground. At 1.37am, the time the moon chaser was supposed to rise from the sea, I was still tied up in the sand and helpless, with the tide licking my toes. All right, it's time, everyone quiet, James said. Looking at me, he added, and that includes you. That moment, the time the beast was supposed to make its presence known, was the only moment I believed it might be real. I wish I could say I never did, but I can't deny the fear I experienced while waiting to see what would erupt out of the waves. Where is it? Nathan asked, camera at the ready. Maybe it's still hiding under the surface. Regina suggested. James said, we need to coax it out. Make him scream. He pointed at me. Regina grabbed the end of a stick that protruded from the bonfire. I protested as she approached me, brandishing the stick like a small spear. My pleas were ignored. She stood in front of me and stared into my eyes. Scream, she said. Hoping I could satisfy her painlessly, I screamed as loudly and as long as I could. When nothing happened in the water, James shouted, That wasn't enough! I opened my mouth to scream again, but before I had a chance to, Regina was pressing the stick against my cheek. Her tactic worked. The second scream I produced was a sound louder than I thought myself capable of making. I continued to scream long after she took the stick away from my face my skin still shriveling and burning. The ocean stayed still and calm. I wondered how long they would wait before deciding they had been wrong about the moon chaser and release me. 1.40 came and went, then 1.45. Nothing changed. No sight, sound, or smell gave any indication of a monster's presence. That's it, James said. I rolled myself over to look at him. He stepped toward the fire and wrapped his fingers around a thicker branch than the one Regina had grabbed. This one still had flames clinging to it as he carried it toward me. What are you doing? I asked, knowing exactly what he was going to do. It can't see us, he screamed. 
Pure insanity muddled his voice and twisted his face into a hideous caricature of a person. His frustration with the anticlimax of all his efforts, the embarrassment of failing so miserably in front of his peers, had driven him to utter madness. It's not real, I shouted. It's not out there, James. It never was. But he grabbed the ropes that bound me and lifted me to my feet. Raising his flaming branch above my head, he said, Run and scream, man. Make a show. Don't let us all down again. With that, he lowered the branch so it was just above my head. In that moment, I wanted nothing more than for the moon chaser to be real. I wanted to see it rise up and put an end to this torture. How long would they keep this up? I could feel my scalp being scorched as my hair started to smoke. I could smell it. Suddenly I heard a crackle and a small pop and the heat became unbearable. I squirmed in the ropes but my feet couldn't move more than a couple of inches at a time. James lowered the branch more, this time holding it behind me. I heard a roar like a small engine as the rope near my hands caught fire too. I dropped to the ground and rolled aimlessly for a while before I happened into the water. The flames went out and my wounds blistered and seethed in the salty water. I continued to scream. James seemed to exchange his anger at his own failure for hatred of me. I think he somehow blamed me for the moon chaser's absence. He started kicking me and the others joined in. I remember seeing Nathan with his camera pointed at me, documenting the whole thing. They kicked me all the way into the ocean. I thought I was going to drown. I guess they thought the same thing because, once I was submerged, they ran off. The burning in my lungs was as unbearable as the real burns on my skin as I desperately held my breath. I struggled to roll myself back into shallower water, but the tide pulled me further, deeper. Between the fire and the beating, the ropes had suffered enough damage to come loose from my hands. With much struggle, I was able to free my hands and push myself above the surface just in time. I dragged myself to shore in agony. I freed my legs next and walked to my car. And that, doctor, is the whole story up to now. Somebody's got to find those people. They aren't going to stop. Of that, I'm sure. You can see for yourself by these wounds how dangerous it is to have them on the loose. Now please, I need something for the pain. Something to make the burning stop. Something to make me forget I ever heard of the Moon Chasers. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening. <laughs>